I'd like to talk with you today about your view of God and your view of what you think God thinks of you. These two things, how you view God and how you perceive God to view you, they will determine the future of your life. They'll determine your inner peace or lack thereof. They'll determine the choices you make. They'll determine at key times when you're discouraged or when you're going through difficulty, your view of God and how you think God views you will determine whether you're going to turn away from God or toward God when you need him most. Some of you know that Melanie and I are in the process right now of adopting a little girl from Haiti. And this has been something that's been on Mel's heart for a while. And I was praying back in January and I finally just gave in. Uh, because I know not all families are called to this, but God's just had been doing a work in my heart that he adopted me when I didn't know him or care about him. And uh, he's given us the resources in diapers and car seats and all of that stuff to add another one to our little tribe. So, so we're in this process, and it's a fairly long process. In fact, our paperwork is finally compiled. It's at the Haitian Embassy in Chicago. It'll get overnighted back here tomorrow. And then, Mel, uh, we have a few more things to do with it, and we send it then to a friend in Florida who's adopting from the same orphanage. She's going to Haiti on Saturday, and she's going to take it with her. So from there, it'll be a one- to three-year process with the Haitian government. And here's a neat update in this very long, drawn-out process. We've been praying specifically for a little girl because of the way that life is for girls in that society. And we've been praying for uh, as young as possible so that we can have the most impact on her life. And we just heard this last Monday that a baby girl was born uh, right by that orphanage in that village, and there's not a father, and the mother doesn't want her. So there's a very good chance that that's her, and we're just trusting God for that. So you can be praying with us. But one of the things is we've been learning all about adoption and trying to prepare ourselves is that there's a really common condition with children who are adopted, especially from overseas countries. It's called reactive attachment disorder. Reactive attachment disorder happens when a young child in those first formative years, especially the first three or four years, if they don't have a loving caregiver who they can bond with, then sometimes if they don't ever get healed from reactive attachment disorder, they never learn how to bond with anyone in their life. Here's one definition of it from the Mayo Clinic. Reactive attachment disorder is a rare but serious condition in which an infant or young child doesn't establish healthy attachments with parents or caregivers. Reactive attachment disorder may develop if the child's basic needs for comfort, affection, and nurturing are not met and loving, caring, stable attachments with others are not established. In other words, if a child cries for food and doesn't get food, or sometimes in these countries they'll put dirt in the child's mouth so that there's something to go through the stomach. If that happens over and over, or if their diapers aren't changed or their needs aren't met, if they're one of a hundred kids and there's one exasperated adult trying to take care of them, they never bond with a caregiver. And if that goes on for long enough, they lose the ability to be able to do that. Children need sensitive and responsive caregivers to develop secure attachments. And this disorder arises when there's a failure 
that to ever happen in the first years. So that's why we're excited that this little girl was just born and she's pretty much getting right into an orphanage that is very small. There's only about seven kids there. And our hope and prayer is that she won't have reactive attachment disorder when we bring her into our house. But if she does, we will love her unconditionally. We will bring her into our home because we're not adopting her to fulfill a need in our hearts. We're adopting her to change her life. As I've learned more about reactive attachment disorder, I've realized this. A child, let's say a, a seven or eight-year-old who has reactive attachment disorder, they're going to look like a normal kid. Um, but when you have a moment where a normal kid would hug or laugh or snuggle or tickle, they're going to seem almost not human because they just don't have that in their programming because of their background. And here's what I've realized. A a child with a reactive attachment disorder who's maybe eight years old, they would know what a dad is. But they wouldn't know what it is to connect with a dad, to be loved by a dad, to be protected and cared for. Let me say that again. A child with this disorder knows what a dad is, but doesn't know what it is to connect with a dad, to be loved, to be secure emotionally, and to be protected. And that I've realized is exactly where the majority of Christians live our Christian lives. Scripture says that before we trust in Christ, we are separated from God by sin. When we trust in Christ, Scripture uses the word adopted, that we're then adopted into the family of God, Just like we're adopting this girl. And if it takes seven years, we're going to welcome her into our home, no matter what she brings with her, because we love her. And if you've ever called out, Jesus, be my Savior, forgive my sins. If you've believed in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for you, if you've professed him as your Lord and Savior, you are adopted into the family of God. And he loves you no matter what. But very many of us who've been adopted into his family are living with a spiritual attachment disorder. That is, before we were adopted into God's family, we lived in a dysfunctional environment spiritually. And we really haven't learned how to bond with God the way that Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden. You could put it this way. Most Christians know about God as Heavenly Father without ever connecting to Him emotionally and securely as what? As their Father. Do you know God as a distant heavenly father or do you know him as your father? Do you know him as your good father? Are your assumptions when you think of God the father that he wants to help you, that he wants to hear from you? Or like me a lot of days, do you kind of default to an assumption that God's probably upset with you, that you probably aren't really living up to his expectations? Are you maybe aware that there's a father, but not aware that he's your father and that he's a good father and a defining father? That is, when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see a mom? Do you see an airline pilot? When, you, when someone says, who are you, know, who are you? what do you do? Well, I'm a journalist is what I used to say. Now I often say I used to be a journalist and now I'm a pastor. But the reality is I am because of Christ a son of God. And and what we're talking about today is knowing God, not just as a heavenly father or the heavenly father, but as your heavenly father, as your good heavenly father. 
in a way that as you know him intimately, it redefines who you are to be accurate in the universe as a child of God. We're all born with a spiritual attachment disorder because of sin. And even after we're adopted into God's family, it's a lifelong journey for us to really define ourselves, not by what the world says about us, not by our human credentials. I'm not the youngest of four boys. I'm not a pastor's kid from Michigan. I, I, am, a, I am a child of God, adopted into the family of God. And it's a lifelong process of us really learning to define ourselves this way. I wonder, where do you see yourself in this kind of healing process of spiritual attachment disorder? Are are you still kind of at the beginning where your default thoughts of God are that he is angry, that he's against you, that maybe he's holding back on you, that maybe when you lost your job, he did that to punish you because of that one time you did whatever? Is that still kind of where you are? If so, that's okay. He loves you right there. Or, Or are you maybe a little further along? Scripture gives us so many beautiful pictures of our loving Heavenly Father. In Luke chapter 15, we have a story of a prodigal son who runs away, who who dishonors his father's name, who disobeys everything his dad ever told him, who pretty much by his actions tells his dad, Dad, you're better off to me dead. I'd rather have your money than have you. And that father, God the Father, never stops loving that son. And your father will never stop loving you. So it's no surprise when we look at Jesus' life, we see him describing himself more than any other way as son. More than 70 times, Jesus calls himself a son. People around him called him teacher. They called him prophet. They called him all sorts of things. But how did Jesus think of himself as a son? He defined himself by his purpose, his father. He found his purpose in his father. He found his security, his identity, not in his surroundings, in his father. So it's not a big surprise when the disciples say in our text today, Lord, teach us how to pray that Jesus is going to begin the model prayer with our identity and our relationship to the father. So let's look at this prayer in Matthew's gospel, chapter six. Jesus says this, this then is how you should pray. Here the prayer begins, our Father. Now, if you've grown up in, in churchy circles, you're really familiar with this prayer. It's kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance or something. You, you know our Father, right? The, these words were not familiar to Jesus' hearers at the time. In fact, they were revolutionary. In fact, they were offensive. People were trying to kill Jesus right now because he kept saying he was God's son. Now, obviously, apart from Jesus, if one of us claimed that, I'm sent from heaven, I'm the Son of God, here to save the world we would be insane, right? Jesus claimed that because that's actually who he was. And his life backed it up and the people around him saw it. And when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, he proved it. But because Jesus kept calling himself, people would say, oh, you're a great rabbi. You're a great teacher. Maybe you're a prophet even. Jesus said, no, no, I'm, I'm the son of God. Or I'm the son of man, which was an Old Testament uh, name for the Messiah who had come to save us. Because of that, Jesus had all these death threats, these people who were trying to kill him. And in Matthew 6, Jesus does us the favor of extending those death threats to us, to all his followers. He says, here's how you start your prayer. You start by reminding yourself who you are. 
You know, uh, there's portions, there's a couple lines in the Lord's Prayer that are somewhat similar to some common Jewish prayers around the first century. Here's what's totally different. Well, the majority of it's different, but especially the beginning. At this time, when you prayed to God, you would start with something like, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, distant, removed, and holy one who we are not even worthy to bow down to. God of Abraham and Moses and Isaac. So it was radical to call God Father. Even more radical to use what is in the grammar a possessive, a possessive of family relationship, my Father. Us together as followers of Christ, our Father. Our Father in heaven. So you start out the day, and how do you start it? I have a Father. You know, my default position, because of my spiritual attachment disorder, is that I'm alone in the world, that no one's looking out for me, that I have to take care of myself and make my way through the world, because that humanly has been my experience in a lot of ways in life. But when, I, when the Lord brings the Lord's prayer to my mind as I'm driving to work, when I get to our Father, it's this little reminder, you're not alone in the world. And because of spiritual attachment disorder, you might feel like you are, but you're not. And you can remind yourself when you pray that, Father, thank you that I'm not alone in the world. Thank you that you're my father. Thank you that you're looking out for me. And where is your father right now? Well, he's at the control center of the universe. He's in heaven. So there's nothing that's going to come your way today that he's not aware of. Our father in heaven Hallowed be your name. God, you are holy. You are set apart. I can't believe I get to be your kid. And then Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this overlaps as well with our spiritual attachment disorder because when we don't realize who we are in God and whose we are as gods, we set out to build our own kingdoms, don't we? You see this especially in Prescott because we have so many retirees. And in the neighborhood where I live, um, some of my neighbor's lawns are like kingdoms. Okay, it's like that's their castle, that lawn is their kingdom, and I just hang my head because my lawn is um, natural landscaping. You know, if we don't know that someone's looking out for us, we set out to build our own kingdom, don't we? Well, I got to look out for myself. I need some money in the bank. I need some retirement. I need some property. And we build our own kingdoms. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer the way Jesus is teaching us, we start by saying, okay, Father, I'm yours. I'm not on my own today. You're looking out for me. You're in control of everything. You are set apart. You are all-powerful. And Lord, I don't have to build a nice little 2,000-square-foot kingdom for myself because there already is a kingdom And it's way better than anything I could build. So, Father, today, would you let your kingdom come? Because it already exists. Would you help it to advance on earth and in my life? And, Lord, would you let your will, that word there means desire. Father, today, I'm going to be approached with all sorts of appetites. I'm going to have all sorts of desires. And every time one of those appetites knocks on the door of my eyes or my ears or my stomach, Lord, I want your desires in my life. Why? Because I trust that as a good dad, you know what's good for me more than I know what's good for me. 
And I really trust you about that, Father. So today, let me live for your kingdom because it's better than any kingdom I could build. And let me live for your desires because they're so much better than my deceitful desires which would enslave me. And then Jesus continues, and we'll pick up next week with the, the, the uh, second half of this with pretty much a list of daily needs. God, today I, I do need bread. Today I do need forgiveness. Today I do need you to protect me from the evil one. But this morning we're focusing on these first two simple words, two simple words, our Father. They mean a redefined self-understanding of two things, identity and relationship. A redefined self-understanding, okay, uh, based on two things. I have an identity. Who am I? Well, I'm the son of my father. You're the daughter or son of your father. That's who you are. And you know what? Your body will age. Your career will change. Sometimes your family will love you. Sometimes your family will neglect you. Sometimes your family may hate you. That doesn't change who you are if you've trusted in Christ. Your identity is fixed. So praying our Father and really letting it sink into our soul, it's a redefining of our identity, an actual correction of who we actually are, and a redefining of our relationship to God. We're all aware, even atheists are aware at some level, that there's something out there that made us and we have a relationship to it. And before Christ, we often know and suspect that our relationship to it is that it's upset with us. The universe is out to get us. If you've trusted in Christ, every day you're able to redefine, correctly define, this is who I am. I'm a son or daughter of God. And my relationship with the creator of the universe is that I'm loved by him. In fact, we're going to see radically that he's well-pleased with you because he's well-pleased with Christ and you're in Christ. So at the soul level, you know, not just on paper, and on paper matters, but at the soul level, when you're in a time of crisis, when you're in a time of temptation, do you see yourself as God's most beloved child who he wants to help? Or do you see yourself as someone who's distant and maybe has a father who's upset or distant? Do you tend to default of thinking of yourself alone in the universe? Well, how do we learn to see ourselves correctly? If we have kind of a spiritual attachment disorder, we're adopted into God's family, he loves us, but we're not really connecting to him because of barriers in our own past. How do we kind of see him for who he is? Well, point number one on your outline puts it this way. Jesus models for us what a restored child of God can look like. Remember Adam and Eve all the way back at the beginning before there was sin separating humanity from God, Adam and Eve lived as perfect children of God. From Adam and Eve forward, from sin forward, generation after generation has passed on a flaw in our spiritual DNA, and we're born separated from God, and we're born into a world that's separated from God. So we kind of grow up with this spiritual attachment disorder. God, in the person of Jesus, came down into our world, first to save you from your sins, Second, to restore you into relationship with your creator, God. That's what you were actually made for. And until you get into relationship with God, you're never going to be fulfilled in life. And then here's the third really cool thing about how Jesus came down. Philippians chapter 2 describes this. That when he came down from heaven, he gave up his rights as God. And he came down, he took on our humanity. So he was 100% human. 
So for 33 years, you know, Jesus, couldn't he have just like flown down through the clouds, saved us from our sins and left? Probably, he probably could have, but he chose to be down here for 33 years. And so that he knows what it is to be called names. He knows what it is to get a cut, to get a scrape, to get a sliver under your fingernail, to get sweat in your eyes, to be rejected by your family, to be loved by a mother. Jesus knows all these things. He's experienced all these things. He put our humanity fully onto himself. And as he did, he modeled for us, here's what it looks like to be a restored child of God down here in this fallen world. You're not home yet, but here's what it looks like to constantly be finding your affirmation and your direction and provision from your heavenly father. Jesus shows us this. I'm going to give you three quick examples of this as we kind of cruise through this idea. I just want you to see what it looks like. First, when Jesus worried about a loved one, what did he do? You ever worry about a loved one? If you're a parent, you do. You worry about your children. When Jesus worried about a loved one, first of all, he relates to you when you do that. And here's what he did. He would call out to his heavenly father. We see this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is talking to Peter, who is also called Simon. And Jesus says, essentially, Peter, you're going to fail me. You're going to betray me. You're going to mess up. And, and for a normal person, wouldn't that be like a major crisis? Because for Jesus, Peter is one of his three closest human friends. But Jesus says more or less, Peter, you're going to fail me. And, you know, it doesn't give me an identity crisis because who I am is not Peter's friend. Who I am is the son of the most high God. And I've already talked to him about it, Peter. And you're going to mess up and it will hurt me. But you know what? He's going to bring you back afterwards. And what Jesus was predicting is that when he went to the cross, all the disciples fled. But then afterwards, they would come back after he rose from the dead And he'd use Peter to build the church. So when Jesus was worried, he cried out to the Father. Next, when Jesus was treated unjustly, he cried out to the Father. Luke chapter 23, Jesus here has been stripped of his clothes. He's being tortured. He's being beaten to death. And as he is, and everyone he knows has abandoned him, earthly, humans have, he calls out to his Father. Why? Because that's kind of how he lived life. He talked to the father a lot. And in fact, he even has the father's perspective on this radical situation. Father, forgive them. They don't even realize what they're doing as they beat me. Again, we see Jesus not looking to people or circumstances for his security. He already has all the affirmation and security he needs in his identity as son of God. Next, When Jesus suffered the greatest struggle of his life, what did he do there in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood? As he decided with his own human free will, am I going to drink the judgment of all humanity's sin for all of history? Jesus decided. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and me because he loves us. He wasn't forced to. And at Gethsemane, we see him making that choice. And what does he do when he's in his greatest struggle? He calls out to his father. I mean, that would be my dream that someday if Jack's in college and there's some girl who he's been dating and he thinks he's going to marry her and she just breaks his heart and he's in this greatest struggle. My dream would be that we'd have the kind of relationship that he could call out to me and say, Dad, what do I do? And here we see Jesus fully human, And he calls out to his father. 
And, and he even asks, Father, is there any way, is there some way we can save humanity without me having to drink all of their judgment and suffer all their consequences? And then look what he says, not my will, but yours be done. Remember that line? That's a line from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's the same word. Your thalema, your desire. Jesus, in moment of crisis, was able to say, Father, as much as I don't desire this, I will submit to your desires for my life. Why? Because he had prayed that hundreds or thousands of times leading up to that. As you pray daily, God... You're my father. You're good. I trust you more than I trust myself. Today, let your desires be done in my life. Then when you get to a crisis, it's a lot easier to submit and surrender and say, God, I trust you. I know your plan's good because I've seen it over the last 10 years. Here we see Jesus agonizing before the father in a way that you would not agonize before someone who wasn't kind of a safe place emotionally. Next, this is going to challenge some of you, but it's the reason it challenges us is because of our spiritual attachment disorder, okay? This challenges me, but this is scripture. Number two, God the Father is well-pleased with Jesus, and he is well-pleased with me because I am in Christ. Really, if I am in Christ. Do you know today for sure that you are in Christ? If you don't, then today can be your day of salvation where you call out to God and say, God, I do want you to be pleased with me. I do trust in Christ to forgive my sins. When you look at me, I want you to see Christ's righteousness, not my own. This phrase, in Christ, is all throughout the New Testament. And it's this idea that for those of us who've trusted in Christ, we are adopted into God's family And we now have the uh, position and the rightness of Christ. We're in him. So when God the Father looks at me, yes, he knows all things and he sees all my flaws. But what he sees spiritually, what he sees as far as righteousness goes, is the righteousness of his son. Because I'm saved not because of what I've done. I could never earn enough righteousness to live in God's house for eternity in heaven. So Jesus gave it to me. That's what he did at the cross. And after you trust in Christ, we're going to look at a verse that says, all the promises of God are yes for you. So first of all, Matthew 3, you see it here. This is one of two times when God the Father cries out from heaven. You hear it through the clouds. All the people who are gathered around Jesus hear God say, this is my son who I love. And in him, I am well pleased. God the Father is well pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. Who says so? Well, God says so. And then God says, if you're in Christ, let's look at 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. No matter how many promises God has made, he's made all sorts of promises for the people who he loves and all sorts of promises for his son in whom he's well pleased. All those promises are yes in Christ. If you're in Christ, all those promises are yes for you. So through him, the amen, the that's right, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Thank you, Father, that when you look at me, you see Christ. I could never have earned that. I don't deserve it, but you gave that to me. Thank you, Father. Here's one more example of it, Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now here's the thing with 
with Christians, and, and by Christians I include myself. Some of us who've been in church for years, who can quote chapter and verse, we know all sorts of facts about God our Father, but when we really, in our heart, at an emotional level, think of him, we think he's upset with us. Those kind of Christians, including me on those unfortunate days, don't believe that he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We think he's blessed us with some spiritual blessings in Christ. But really, he's still a little upset with us. That's how we translate it. But that's not what it says. It says, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So so do you believe today that not because of our righteousness or works, but because of what Christ has done, that we're in Christ, we're under his covering, that when the Heavenly Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, and every spiritual blessing of Christ is yours. Over and over, Scripture says we are in Christ. You're under Christ. You're covered by Christ. If you've believed you're in Christ, and here's the whole point of the cross, when God the Father looks at you, he sees spiritually the righteousness of his Son, a substitutional sacrifice. So does this expand your view of your Father? I I hope so. Next, we see this, number three. Despite all we've learned about our good Heavenly Father, we still tend to assume he's not actually as good and caring as we are. To live the free life of Christ. What do I mean by that? When you trace Jesus' life through the Gospels, Jesus was never once afraid of anyone. Jesus was never once trying to people-please anyone. And yet Jesus loved everyone. How did he live this radical life? Well, it's because of his identity in the Father. It's because he knew who he was. To live that kind of life, we also have to redefine, away from our attachment disorder, our view of our Father as a God who truly is good, caring, and listening. Now, again, this is for those of us who are in Christ. Now, God, I believe, Scripture says, he desires all people to come to salvation. And it's once we are in Christ and make that profession of faith and are adopted into the family of God that all these promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20, are yes for us. They all apply to us. But a lot of us kind of think, well, if I was at the controls of the universe, if I was the father looking down on my life, I would do a little better job. Don't we think that? We don't say it, but we think it. Jesus addressed this thought that many of us have in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Which of you... If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a poisonous snake. If you then, though you're evil, in other words, you have a sin nature and you live in a sinful world, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to all who ask him? I think what Jesus is saying here is something like this. Stop assuming that you are better parents than your heavenly father is. Stop assuming that if you were in heaven looking out for you, you'd do a better job than he does looking out for you. You wouldn't, and you couldn't. Because he sees the big picture. He sees eternity. He sees the day when you are going to be with him in his house forever, and there will be no more tears and pain and suffering. And while you're traveling through this enemy territory, he knows what you need. He is looking out for you. So yes, you love your children. 
but you love them through the filmy lens of a sin nature. Your father loves you so much more perfectly. So ask him to help. Look up to him. Plead to him. Curl up next to him. Ask him what he has planned for your day. God puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. The spirit you received, when you confess your sin to God and ask Christ to be your savior, you get adopted into the family of God, you're in Christ, and while you're down here on this fallen world, you are filled inside with God's Holy Spirit. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, right? Before you knew God as your father, you lived in fear toward him. Now, the spirit you've received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When I'm in the house and one of my kids is behind me and I turn around, they don't flinch. They're not afraid that I'm going to hit them or harm them. They know that I'm a good father. And God says here in Romans 8, your relationship to God doesn't need to be a relationship of fear anymore. Now, we still respect that God is the almighty creator of the universe. That there is a real heaven and a real hell, and Jesus is the judge. And I mean, this is a powerful God. In the same way, my, my children respect me. They know I'm stronger than them. They know I can do things they can't do. But in a healthy relationship, they don't live in constant fear because they know all the strength that I have, all the power that I have, I am only going to ever use for their good and for their benefit. And Romans 8 says, yeah, we still respect that God is almighty. But we don't have to fear that he's ever going to use his power against us because we're his kids. And the Holy Spirit inside us testifies of this. It encourages us about this. See that little phrase, your adoption to sonship? That was a Greek, that was a legal term at this time. And in a Roman court, that term meant that an adopted child into a family had all the legal rights of a biological son. Now that matters. Now this is sexist. This is not the Bible. This is history, okay? At this time, in the first century, if you were born into a Roman family and you were a girl, you did not get the same inheritance as your brothers. You did not get the same education as your brothers. You were treated maybe a little bit higher than the slaves. The sons got the money and the power and the education. That was the way the culture worked at this time. Here's what's radical about this verse. Paul's writing to the church at Rome, which is full of men and women. And he says, brothers and sisters, all of you who've trusted in Christ, when you trusted in Christ, you were adopted into the family of God and you were given the legal rights of the son of God. Whether you're man or woman, you have the legal rights of a firstborn son. Isn't that incredible? At the, at the time, that was incredible. We don't understand it as much now. But again, God is saying here, you're adopted in. You know, uh, three or four or five years from now, when little Evie is, is at our house, I'm not going to treat her any differently than I treat my daughter Zoe. I, I'm not, she's not going to be a second-class Dickerson, okay? 
When Mel and I leave this earth, she'll get the same inheritance. She'll get the same whatever we're able to do for college for the other kids. She's going to get the same everything. She's adopted as a legal, adopted as an equal. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you know that about yourself? That you're adopted into the family of God, into sonship, what that means. Remember those times when Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Number four on your outline, when Jesus said we must become as little children, he was encouraging a few things. First, that we'd be humble. Kids, you know, they make mistakes and they spill milk and they laugh and spray juice out their nose on the table and stuff like that, right? And God knows that about us as kids. We make mistakes. But because of that, kids are, are, are kind of humble usually in their heart of hearts. They kind of know they can't, like, get up and drive to Phoenix by themselves or go out and, you know, order a pizza and go pick it up by themselves. They, they just know their dependence. But they also know that they have a good provider if they're in a healthy home. And so don't they, parents, sometimes come boldly to their good providers? <laughs> they sometimes come boldly to us because they know that we do want to help them. You know, Jack, my son, is four. Zoe is two. When they wake up in the morning, I've never, I've never gone into their room and seen them writing out a list. Like, okay, here's all the groceries I need to get today. Here's how much money I need to make to get the food. I need this much to pay the electricity bill. It's due tomorrow. Right? They, they're oblivious to all that. The only thing they know they need is me or Mel, my wife. When they wake up, at their young age, they just run to us. Because in us, they get everything they need. That's what Jesus is saying. He says it here in Matthew 18. He called a little child to him. The disciples have just asked, Lord, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom? How do we get power in your kingdom? He calls a little child, places the child among them. I picture Jesus with his hand on this child's shoulder. Everyone's gathered around. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling these people, you're not going to earn your way to God. You can't do enough good things to get to God. You've got to be humble enough to say, God, I need your forgiveness. Be humble like a child. Look to God as a provider, as a child does. And then come boldly. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us who are in Christ approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's one thing I've realized is I've counseled different Christians. In our time of need, Christians often we think, oh, I lost the job or there's this health problem or whatever, so God is now against me. Okay, I want to challenge that. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus, who two times God shouted from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Was Jesus' life really comfortable as far as circumstances go? I mean, didn't he die impaled to a Roman torture device? Right? So when your life goes bad, it doesn't mean God has forsaken you. It means it's time to go to him in confidence and call out for grace and mercy in your time of need, just as Jesus did in Gethsemane. Why does it work like that? Well, it's because we're in enemy territory. Satan is the prince of this world. We're not home yet. When we're home in heaven for eternity, those things will all be passed. But right now, God sustains us through it. And here's the key. 
Satan wants, when your life gets hard, for you to turn away from God. God wants, when your life gets hard, for you to turn to him. And those are the only two choices you can make. When things get really difficult, you either turn to God or away from him. I had this professor down at Phoenix Seminary. His name is Norm Wakefield. And we had this whole class where we studied Genesis 3. And here, point number five is a synthesis of what Dr. Wakefield taught me. Before sin, Eve perceived God, the way she looked at God, was as a loving and kind provider. And if you study Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8, you're going to see that Satan, what did he do? How did he pry humanity away from God? Well, he challenged Eve's view of God. And he did this by distorting the truth. Did this by creating doubt. And he did this by promoting Eve, who was in a perfect, emotionally healthy dependence on God. Satan says, Eve, look at you. You're a big girl. You don't need, you don't need God so much anymore. Did God really tell you that? Eve, God's not really looking out for you. You should doubt God. You could look out for you better. So take a bite. Satan encouraged Eve to live not as a dependent child who needs God, but as an independent adult who can take care of herself. I wonder for you, how has Satan distorted your view of your heavenly father? How has spiritual attachment disorder still clouded your view of your heavenly father? You're adopted into his family. He loves you no matter what, but when you think of him, when you view him, it's still a little distorted. Today, Satan still distorts our view of God by saying he's not actually good. He's kind of holding out. Satan distorts our view of ourself in in two really twisted ways. He'll say, on the one hand, you don't need God. And on the other hand, he'll say, you are so shameful and disgusting. But when we look at what God says about us, he says, yeah, you do need me. But there's no shame. You're totally forgiven. I'm well pleased with you because you're in Christ but you do need me. (laughs) Satan also distorts our view of sin. The very things that would devour and destroy our souls, he whispers, this will fulfill you. This will please you. And Satan distorts our view of what our actual need is. He loves it if we think our actual need is that next house, that next check, that retirement account, that girl or that boy or that baby. He loves it for us to think that's our actual need. Because he knows we only have one actual need. It's our father. And if he can keep us running around looking to all these other needs, then he keeps us living in spiritual attachment disorder. Well, children get this. When they wake up, they run to a good mom or dad knowing that's that's all I need today. They'll feed me. They'll protect me. They'll provide for me. So when the disciples said, Jesus, how do we pray? He starts our Father. Hopefully now you understand a little bit of what that means when you hear that and hopefully when you start your day and your mind's racing and you think, oh, well, what am I going to do today? Hopefully the Holy Spirit will bring back to you our Father. And you remember who you are and whose you are. So as we close, we're going to have a time to meditate and here's the question for you. Will you very simply tell your Heavenly Father I do want to connect with you.
I do want to trust you in every way. My heart is not that you believe any of my words or ideas today. My heart is that you believe God's word and that you believe who he says he is and how much he says he loves you at the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for being with us here and for helping us to understand you. Lord, if we're honest, we all have this attachment disorder at different levels. We're born into a world where our ancestors didn't connect with you, and we just we don't have that in our DNA to connect with you the way that Adam and Eve did and the way that Jesus did. But Jesus, when we trusted in you, we were adopted into the family of God, and we thank you for that. Lord, I just pray today for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room that they would know who they are as your sons and daughters. That we'd stop looking to the world around us to protect us, fulfill us, provide for us, because, Father, you do all that. Would you help us every morning to run to you instead of running to our to-do lists? Would you help us where there's false shame or guilt, where we think you're not well-pleased with us because of our mistakes, to believe your promises that you're well-pleased with us because of Christ and because we are in Christ. So, Lord, teach us to live as your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.